on this episode of Lifestyle Rx. The biggest issue is getting too extreme. People saying, oh, I found this great diet, it's so great and it works so well for two months. And it, as humans, you know, we like variety. We like the flavor of certain things and it's just too hard to stay on it. And then it just ends up being worse where you try an extreme and then you get frustrated and you gain all your weight back and your health is even worse. So, you know, I think you have to find something that fits into your life long-term and, and make choices that have very few ingredients as opposed to long lists of ingredients because almost surely those will not be as healthy. Um, and then, you know, just, you know, try to realize that once in a while, if you have something, you know, that's, you know, that's may not be healthy. That's not so bad, but don't make it every day. Don't make it, you know, I need to have a dessert every day or I need to have a treat myself and then do it every day. You know, treating yourself once a week, it makes the treat that much nicer. And the other days you can have plant forward meals. Hi everyone, I'm so excited to have Dr. Eric Krim here today. He's a professor of nutrition and epidemiology at the Harvard School of Public Health. He's had over 20 years of experience in the field, but on a more personal note, I know him as my academic advisor. It's actually a really funny story. Last year when I was assigned Dr. Rim, I was so happy, but I was also so nervous going into our first meeting. But he was just so kind and so reassuring. And something he said to me really stuck with me is that there's a lot more to do over here than get straight A's. And that really took away a lot of the pressure of being at such a prestigious university. So I'm really glad to have him here. And I know for a fact that you're going to take away a lot from this conversation today. Dr. Rim, you've been such an inspirational figure and influential figure in the field of nutrition and epidemiology, having published over 750 peer-reviewed papers. What drew you to pursue such a career? Uh, hi, Krepa. Thank you. It's great to see you. Um, it's, an in, it's an interesting question. Some of it has to do with sort of the history of the field of nutritional epidemiology. I started as a PhD student when I was quite young back in the mid 80s. And actually, I didn't quite know what I wanted to go into. I had taken a lot of biology courses in, at the university when I was um, studying. And I worked in a genetics lab, but I just didn't love bench science enough. And then I um, took a bunch of computer classes and I was really good at that because I have a really strong quantitative background. And, but I didn't want to program my whole life, so I needed to find a field that was somewhere between basic science and computer science. And that's when I, I found a job working for an epidemiologist at my undergraduate university, and I kind of fell in love with the field. And it wasn't until I got to Harvard that I met Dr. Willett, who's really the, you know, the premier um, leader in the field of nutritional epidemiology, that I sort of fell in love with that field. And that's sort of um, you know, what I've been doing for the last 30 plus years is nutritional epidemiology. And, you know, I'm still learning. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a lifelong process. The methods have changed, the, the, you know, the size of the studies, the nutrient databases. So um, it does, you know, you continue to, to weave and, and, um, and learn new things in the field. And I, I think overall, the biological sciences has helped us understand more about nutrition as well as the population sciences. Absolutely. And this certain stereotype about being at Harvard, uh, which I know from 
personal experience is far from true because I've met some of the most compassionate people fighting for real world change in different areas. Um, what has your experience at this prestigious institution been for the last 20 or so years? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think the people that find public health are really, um, you know, driven to try to find solutions to make population health better. And, you know, I, I've met people from the law school and the business school and the Kennedy School. And, you know, I think each school has some of its own personality and some of it's just driven by the leadership at those schools. And I think the leadership at the, at the Harvard Chan School, at the School of Public Health, really is mission driven. We have experts in global health, experts in nutrition, we have experts in reproductive health. And so I think a lot of our passion comes from the leadership, the passion in the leadership. And, you know, I, um, some of it is that people don't go into public health because they want to make millions of dollars. You know, we're, we're not as dollar driven. Um, so I, I think that comes through, you know, we're dollar driven when it comes to getting grants and trying to understand population health. I think really people at the school, at school of public health are, are all about um, trying to find the best paths to, to help individuals, populations, and, and the world, um, you know, lower risk of disease. I completely agree with you. And speaking of diseases and population health, right now chronic diseases like diabetes and heart issues are rising across the world. They're affecting governments, economies, and healthcare systems. More so, we're seeing people with pre-existing conditions have a worsened risk for coronavirus. But why are these non-communicable diseases on the rise? And what can we do as individuals and as communities to control or prevent them? Yeah, that's, it's such a hard question that many, many epidemiologists struggle with and policymakers struggle with, you know, WHO struggles with. I, you know, I think some of it is, um, the nature of our choices and our options uh, in free living populations. It's, it's too easy not to exercise and not to move. It's too easy to find very cheap, unhealthy, highly processed foods. There's lots of things that are very appealing to the individual at the moment, um, but sort of it works against them for their long-term health. And as corporations and food industry has expanded globally, you know, what we have in certain populations like the United States is now unfortunately spread throughout. So fast food restaurants and highly processed food and um, it's just become cheaper and cheaper. So more and more people can eat unhealthy and because of cars and all sorts of other ways of getting around, we've just, we, we move less. There's fewer people working on farms. There's fewer people doing hard, you know, physical work uh, as part of their labor. So people just are, don't move as much and don't eat as well. And those choices are hard. I mean, we see advertisements everywhere on TV, even in schools. So you're constantly barraged with the fact that you should be eating cheap processed food, but that unfortunately um, really in the long term increases our risk of diabetes and heart disease and cancer and does make us more susceptible to the, the impact of infectious diseases like COVID. Absolutely. Dr. Rim, we know of late plant-based eating, um, going vegan, going vegetarian, is gaining a lot of trend. Um, in terms of that, a lot of processed meat alternatives, such as burgers and meat, um, alternative hot dogs have come about, even soy chunks. 
What are your thoughts on these meat-based alternatives? Yeah, that's, that's really, um, I think it's an exciting area because the plant-based alternatives are good for the environment. You know, we, we, we probably reduce greenhouse gases by 90 to 95% by having a pea protein-based hamburger instead of a beef-based hamburger or a, you know, met many of the other proteins, uh, soy protein-based burgers. The, the question really is, you know, are, are they healthier for us? Um, and it actually, I think, depends on what else is in that, in that plant burger. Um, there hasn't been great studies published yet I do know of one that's coming out very soon where someone did a clinical trial testing sort of a pea protein-based alternatives to meat-based alternatives. And, you know, I think it's actually up to the consumer to look at the package to see what's in it. Because a lot of the, the protein, the vegetable-based um, alternatives are very high in coconut oil. Some actually are made with canola oil or vegetable oils, but coconut oil is um, particularly high in saturated fat. So I think an alternative to beef that is high in coconut oil is not gonna do you any benefit. But a alternative to beef that's high in canola oil or soybean oil or other, you know, much more um, vegetable-based oils that's, that are higher in polyunsaturated fats, those actually probably, one will be better for the environment and two will be better for you. I think that's so important because a lot of times we tend to view health in such isolated lenses as to it's just me, it's just nutrition, or it's just exercise. But environmental health is often lost and it does have a profound effect on our well-being in the long term. Uh, speaking of labels, I think not a lot of us are actively aware of what we're putting into our systems. We see labels such as vegan, gluten-free, when it's literally just processed food with a lot of sugar. So I like to believe that if you can't pronounce it or if you don't cook with it, don't buy it, um, just as a general norm. But there's so much conflicting information out there. Um, I think initially they said coconut oil was bad for you. Now it's great. It's bad again. Butter was bad. Now we're swirling it into our coffee. It just seems like yesterday's medicine could be today's poison. So what are your a few basic recommendations that you may have for anyone watching to lead a healthy lifestyle? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a tricky question. And unfortunately, it is true that there's the perception because of media pronouncements that, you know, one day something is something and one day it's something else. But overall, um, nutritional science, we, we agree on like 90 or 95 percent of what's out there. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, I think the more highly processed it is, the more nutritional science would say that's less healthy. And that example you just gave of a, you know, a, a beef burger versus a plant-based burger, there's a lot of other ingredients in that plant-based burger. And sometimes people who have the plant-based burger will have a white bun on it and will put a lot of salt on it and other condiments, which you know, none of those things are healthy. So I, I really, I do try to shy away from specific labels of you know, the keto diet versus vegan versus whatever. If you can do those, a lot of the times they work, but it's so hard for people to stay on those diets. So I like to think of diets as more plant-forward, where most of the plate is plant-based. And once in a while, if you really want to have an animal-based something, and it, the portion size is small, and you know, preferably fish, and I think that's fine. So I think it's the biggest issue is getting too extreme. People saying, "Ah, oh, I found this great diet; it's so great, and it works so well for two months." 
and it, as humans, you know, we like variety. We like the flavor of certain things and it's just too hard to stay on it. And then it just ends up being worse where you try an extreme and then you get frustrated and you gain all your weight back and your health is even worse. So, you know, I think you have to find something that fits into your life long-term and, and make choices that have very few ingredients as opposed to long lists of ingredients because almost surely those will not be as healthy. Um, and then, you know, just, you know, try to realize that once in a while, if you have something, you know, that's, you know, that's may not be healthy. That's not so bad, but don't make it every day. Don't make it, you know, I need to have a dessert every day or I need to have a treat myself and then do it every day. You know, treating yourself once a week, it makes the treat that much nicer. And the other days you can have plant forward meals. I think that's such a great message because there's not a lot of food rules and restrictions with come with, with this ideology where you're choosing to eat healthy, but you're also choosing to indulge because you're human and it doesn't come from a place of need, but just I'm a human being. I want to enjoy a treat once in a while. And also considering the long term where a lot of fad diets tend to fall short because they're so restrictive. But another topic that's gained a lot of controversy is red meat. Um, again, just like Bato, is it bad? Is it good? Is it good for your heart? What's the deal with red meat? So I think, um, you know, there's probably, once the initial studies of red meat were done um, early, maybe in the mid 90s, you know, it was pretty clear that red meat was detrimental to diabetes, heart disease, and some forms of cancer. And then the studies got larger and then the industry got involved where the red meat industry was funding some studies or funding individuals. And then that sometimes creates confusion. And that's kind of what the industry wants. They want to create the confusion so people get frustrated and just give up and eat what they want. But, you know, now the field really has evolved a lot. And I think there's really good science. And one of the tricky things about red meat, at least in, in the United States and, and many um, developed, developed countries, is that if, if red meat is part of your diet four days a week and you say, oh, I want to restrict red meat, you have to replace it with something. And so a lot of the thinking about is red meat healthy or not or unhealthy, we always have to think compared to what. So if you're taking red meat out of your diet and instead putting in a processed you know, white flour or something, or you're eating you know, white pasta every day or eating white bread and, and you know, processed food, then that red meat actually may look healthy. So it's, it's always relative to what. And if we take red meat and compare it to fish or red meat compared to chicken or red meat compared to beans, red meat always comes out as being worse. So we do know that chicken and fish and beans and other important sources of protein are all healthier than red meat. And I think that's the biggest point is that, you know, think, think about your whole diet. Think about the whole week of all the things you've eaten. And if you take red meat out, put something healthy in and that clearly will lead to better health long term. Absolutely. And that's such a valid point in compared to what, in compared to what. Um, often we see headlines such as red wine is really good for you. But a very big point gets missed out is that if you don't drink, don't start. So don't drink red wine because it's healthy. I know you've extensively researched uh, alcohol consumption. What, in your opinion, is alcohol's if, if effect on human health? Yeah, alcohol is, is really a tricky, um, it's such a tricky subject. You know, I'm a cardiovascular epidemiologist. So I, you know, most of what I've done early on in my career was studying, you know, what raises or lowers risk of heart attack and stroke. 
And clearly alcohol is one of those things that lowers your risk of heart disease pretty substantially and lowers your, lowers your risk of stroke a little bit. But, but alcohol is tricky. I mean, we know it causes car accidents. We know it causes uh, all sorts of trauma in mostly in 20 year olds or, or, or younger. It's just, you know, that's sort of an, the abuse of alcohol. Um, and not so much red malt wine, but you know, all, all beer and spirits and, and sometimes wine. So I think it's, it's tricky. That's why it's really hard to give a global uh, recommendation on alcohol because it really depends on who you are, where you are in your life. Um, but I think, you know, if you look at the science and look at studies that have been, have gone on for 30 and 40 years and have multiple measures of people's alcohol patterns over the course of their lifetime, we do know what people drink changes over time. Usually as people age, they drink a little bit less because it impacts them. They feel a little bit more uncomfortable. So they may drink less. So if you have, if you track all that over the course of someone's lifetime, what we know is that people who drink about one to two drinks a day on average, but not more, um, live the longest compared to people that don't drink at all or people who drink a lot more. So it's another one of those things where it's compared to what? So if you drink a drink a day, compared to what? Compared to people who drink three or four drinks a day or binge drink, then one drink is clearly better. And compared to people that don't drink or haven't consumed alcohol in the last 30 years, then one or two drinks a day is better. So. I think that it's really, a, it's a tricky thing if you have a disease, if you have a family history of alcohol abuse, if you're pregnant, if you're driving, all these things where you definitely shouldn't be drinking. So it really, a lot of it comes down to the individual and it's best to do it slowly and to do it with a meal and do it with friends. It can be part of a culture, but it shouldn't be the only thing you focus on. I'm sure several people are gonna be really happy to hear that. Um, yeah, I've made a lot of friends by, by at, at parties saying it's good, stop it too, but it's good for you. Yeah, and I'm sure they're going to really cherish this advice. Uh, Dr. Rim, it's been great having you here. And if you were just to summarize a few points that we could do to protect our heart health and make sure we're thriving at life and not just surviving, what would that be? Yeah, I think um, we've talked some about diet and sort of the, you know, the first thing about choosing healthy choices in your diet is make them delicious. You know, cook with extra virgin olive oil, cook with good veg vegetable oils. And, and if you make vegetables and fruits taste delicious, it really, it creates that desire to eat healthy. Where you create, you cook fish in a really nice way with great spices from your country. You know, it really wants you to eat healthy because it tastes delicious. So that's the first point is, you know, eat healthy by making the healthy food delicious. And the second thing I think that we don't study enough is sort of diet patterns and, and when we eat and how we eat. You know, I think people who eat healthy but have all their food at night, you know, between 10 and 12 o'clock at night before they go to sleep, I think that's probably not very healthy. I think it's better to eat your meals during the day, probably better to have sort of three meals during the day as opposed to crazy fasting and, you know, all, all sorts of different patterns or binge eating at night. So. I really think that we have to think about diet as a part of a lifestyle where we have exercise involved and we have healthy, delicious food and food that's consumed at meals with family slowly and enjoyably. So all of those things, I think, speak to a healthy lifestyle, um, you know, not smoking, trying not to gain weight, eating a healthy, delicious diet, eating it at, at you know, during the day, occasionally with a glass of wine. Um, all, of those, all of those things will clearly lead to much longer um, lifespan, much lower risk of heart disease and cancer. 
These are such doable action steps that I think people can integrate into their lives slowly. Like you suggested, there's no one-size-fits-all approach, but that advice was so meaningful. I really thank you for being here and offering all this wisdom to me and all, everyone listening today. It was a pleasure having you, Dr. Rim, and I can't wait to see you in person again. Okay, thank you. It was really great seeing you again, Kripa. Yeah, and uh, please come back to Boston soon. I'm waiting to come back. Thank you.